Thank you for coming to the podcast, Top Turtle MMA Podcast on FlowCombat.com, featuring interviews with Jimmy Rivera and Gary Tonin, is brought to you by Human Weapon Clothing. Human Weapon is a no-nonsense clothing line that gets away from the overstimulated graphics that other MMA clothing brands have. Plus, they are proud to announce their new Kickstarter for their newest product, the Black Belt Bag. It's like a cinch sack that looks like a martial arts gi with the belt included. So if you're into BJJ or any other martial martial art it's the coolest way to haul your gear while showing off what it is that you do so go to blackbeltbag.com and be one of the first to get a hold of these and don't waste time because they are going fast and also don't forget to get all your human weapon gear at humanweapon.com with promo code flow f-l-o for 15 percent off human weapon brings you this episode of top turtle and it starts right now Dan with FlowCombat.com's podcast, Top Turtle MMA, and we are lucky enough to speak today to Jimmy the Terror Rivera, who fights Dominic Cruz at UFC 219 on December 30th. Uh, Jimmy, you know, you're on a 20-fight win streak, and, you know, over the course of that 20 fights, you've been pretty fairly quiet on all of the call-outs, uh, but after your win in Long Island, you went right after Dominic Cruz, uh, cage side. Was that natural for you, or did you start to feel sort of the pressure that, like, in this day and age, you have to make call-outs in MMA? They, you know, you hear Daniel Cormier after the last, the previous Brazil fight, asking every fighter, you know, who's next for you, who you want. And that's what, you know, UFC wants. They want you to call out people. And that's what he did. It says, Cody and DJ can't, you know, one of them hurt, I'll step in and fight. Or if Cruz wants to get off the bench and fight, I'll fight. You know what I mean? I mean, that makes the most sense. Either fighting one of those guys or fighting the winner of TJ and Cody or fighting Cruz and making a number one contender fight. Mm-hmm. So that made the, that makes the most sense, and that's what I was drawn for, and I had a game plan. You know, the last couple of times I went to the mic and didn't have any big game, game plans. You know what I mean? Now I, you know, I had a game plan for that too as well, besides, you know, my fighting game plan. Yeah, and I think that's so important too in this day and age that I, I think not a lot of fighters realize that, you know, e- even uh, just they were talking to Derek Brunson after that fight in Brazil, like you said, and he – he said he didn't quite know who to call out, so he just said Luke Rockhold's name because that's who came to his head. Yeah, you really got to have a game plan with that. You got to be good on the mic, and you got to be good. I, unfortunately, I'm not one to trash talk, <laughs> but I'll call, I'll talk to, I'll call someone out, and I will uh, I will uh, what's it called? You know, say I could beat him because I believe myself I could beat him. Yeah, and and you kind of mentioned that with Cruz too. You know, Cruz is a guy who you know logistically lines you up for a title shot. What do you like with that matchup with Cruz other than that it just leads to the title shot? What, is it, what do you like stylistically out of it? I'm, I mean, it's, it's great. It, I think it's just a, a, the best thing for it. I mean, I, I get to be, beat the ex-former champ. It puts my name out there even more. He's been around for years. I've only been in the UFC for two and a half years. So, you know, when he makes a statement where, yeah, of course, you know, no one knows who this kid is. Of course they don't. I haven't been around as long as him. I've been fighting WC. I haven't been in the UFC for numerous years. I've only been in the UFC for two and a half years, but being in the UFC for two and a half years and being ranked number three in the world and then having a five-year-old record, you know, definitely, you know, talk smack itself. So I, I don't really have to do that. Everything I, I, all my talk smack is done in the cage, and I show it with everything I have accomplished. You know, I mean, all my accomplishments with from being, you know, 21 and one was a 25 win streak from owning my own school and having 250 students in my school, you know, it just speaks for itself. So I don't need one to, to brag or, or, or boat about it. I just, you know, let my accomplishments speak for itself. And, and the next step was, you know, either fighting Cruz 
And I think it was going to help me get my name out there even more. Yeah, and, and you said leading up to that fight, too, that you were surprised he took it. I feel like you kind of already touched on this, but were you only surprised because, you know, it it, it is, you know, a, a not such a big name for him when he has been fighting marquee names the whole time? I was until I heard um, his interview on MMA Hour where basically, you know, and I, I agree with him, um, you know, Sean Shelby is the king of the division. She, he makes the matches. He's the boss. And um, he wasn't guaranteed a title fight after uh, um, after this next fight coming up this weekend was Cody and, and TJ. So, you know, when it came down to that, I was, was you know, ha- I was happy for once, in, once in, for once in a lifetime. You know, I get a little advantage of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mean, I get the ball in my court. Yeah. So, um, and I think honestly, he, you know, he had the option to rematch uh, Cody, and he didn't want to do it right away. So he kind of lost his opportunity. Now he has to defend the spot. Just like me, I you know I'm, I was ranked what four or five before going fighting uh, Thomas Almeida, and then you know when I went in there, I fought Almeida. He was ranked like nine or eight, and I had to defend my spot. Now the next step is to go forward and fight up the ladder, and you know if, if Cody and TJ and you know are busy fighting, the next step would be Cruz. Yeah, and let's talk about that Cody uh, TJ fight too, because we've made a couple of allusions to it. It's coming on this weekend. Uh, it, it's in your backyard. Are you going to the fight? Yes, I will be attending the fight. Nice. So, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe not the exact same kind of heat as Darren Till and uh, Mike Perry, but we might get something uh, a little bit more mild than that. I'm sorry. Say that again. I apologize. <laughs> That's all right. I said maybe not the same kind of heat we got when Darren Till yelled at Mike Perry cage side, uh, but maybe something a little bit more mild than that when some one of them wins. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it all depends. Yeah, it really all depends. I'm just looking forward to that fight, and I'm looking forward to uh, you know, the return of GSP, and looking forward to you know Joanna and Rose. You know, what I mean, I think it's going to be one of the most excited fights of the night. Mm-hmm. Then, and then obviously looking forward to my weight class, and then seeing GSP come and see what GSP comes into the cage and you know what he's going to do. I'm hoping for an exciting fight with that. Yeah, I I think everybody's sort of hoping with that. Let, let's get right back to the, the Bantamweight real quick too, though, because I did want to get your take on what, what you think of the fight. Because, you know, Dillashaw fights a lot like Cruz. I mean, you saw them uh, kind of fight very similar to each other in a fight with each other in Boston. Uh, and Garbrandt seemed to have no problem with Cruz. What, what are kind of your expectations going into watching this fight? Um, It's going to be interesting because they know each other so well. And um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what is going to happen and what's, you know, what the outcome is going to be because they've trained with each other for so many years and they've been part of the team and should be very interested to see what the outcome is. I think, you know, they both have the upper hand because they've trained with each other. It's going to, it's just going to be a unique outcome. I'm going to see who, you know, I think it's going to come down to who's the better striker and that's what, what it's going to be, whether it's, you know, Cody's boxing skills or, you know, TJ's awkward movement that he has, kind of like Cruz and his punching. I mean, you saw it wasn't so successful with Dominic Cruz and Cody, so you don't really know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And now I can sort of tell, based on what you said before, that you're a little bit of a GSP fan, uh, as is my co-host. So uh, i got to ask you, in that fight too, uh, what are you expecting to see out of a guy who's taken, what is it, four years off at this point? I'm hoping that he doesn't just take him down and lay and pray on him. I hope he does some work with it. But um, it would be great to see him just stand up and bang. You know what I mean? Honestly, just kickbox him and, you know, get his strikes in. I mean, I wonder if that ring rust is going to happen for him. You know, people say, you know, Cruz always says there's no ring rust. But, 
you could definitely tell the difference between fights when you're fighting constantly and when you're taking a leave of absence for a little while, whether you're hurt or not, or just you're so-called retired. Um, so it should be interesting to see what will happen or if he plays it safe and just hits the takeout takedown like GSP like uh Bisping's was saying, you're just gonna try to take me down and lay on top of me. Yeah, and, and I think you're right on with that ring rest too. I mean, this is coming right after a weekend where we saw Loyola Machida try to come back uh and certainly not look as sharp as he has in the past. Well this yeah, you are going to get someone who's, you know, a lot younger, mm-hmm. a lot faster speed, but I mean Machida's still dangerous in the well dangerous itself, but he doesn't have a great boxing background so he only has his his kicks and his muay thai so when it came down to that you're going to see who's the better boxer if, if brunson wasn't you know afraid of coming in and moving forward I mean, yeah. which he wasn't he came in he took the punch he came around with a nice hook and was able to finish the fight yeah well we, we've taken you to pretty much the end of the the time frame here uh jimmy we thank you so much for the time and we really appreciated the technical breakdowns with you too because we can tell you're a super knowledgeable guy that's definitely the coach shining through um once again jimmy fights dominic cruz at ufc 219 on december 30th uh jimmy thanks again for the time no problem thank you this is Dave and Dan with Top Turtle MMA Podcast on FlowCombat.com, and we are talking to Donaher Death Squad member Gary Tonin, who's making the switch to MMA after many, many years uh, on top of the jiu-jitsu world, and he signed to 1FC, which is an impressive Asian organization. So, Gary, let's kick right into it. We saw Mackenzie Dern kind of make that same switch over after being a dominant grappling star over to the world of MMA. Uh, but she still makes kind of a lot of grappling appearances. Uh, can we expect to see you still kind of on your uh, usual grappling circuit, or are we going to see a, a drop-off in how much we see you? Yeah, you're definitely going to see a little bit of a drop-off um, because I really want to focus on getting better at mixed martial arts. So I just can't dedicate as much time to competing in jiu-jitsu, but uh, I still plan to compete in it. Uh, you know, one of the stipulations of the, of, of the contract, as I said, you know, I don't, I'm not allowed to talk too much about the contract, but I said this before. I sign anything anyway, so I can't imagine them having a problem with it, um, was that, you know, I'm still allowed to compete in, in grappling. So, um, you know, I'll also, I think, you know, you might see me grapple for 1FC again as well. You know, uh, I'll be fighting for them mostly, but uh, I think they're also interested in just like that one match that I had with Shinya Aoki also having grappling super fights in their organization. So, um, you know, maybe you won't see as many um, grappling matches in uh the normal shows that I, I guess I would compete in, but you're definitely going to still see me grappling. Um, but there's going to be, you know, I can only do so much with the time that I have and, uh, you know, training for MMA, uh, especially when, you know, it's a new thing for me is going to take a lot of my time. So, um, definitely a little bit less than usual. Yeah. And I'm actually glad you mentioned Aoki because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my second question had him built into it. So, you know, Dern, just to kind of continue the comparison here, got some kind of relatively unknown opponents to kick off her career. Do you kind of expect that same treatment, or are you gunning for somebody like Aoki in your, your debut when you finally do get it? Oh, no, man. I mean, I definitely expect I – would. <laughs> I mean, I hope we're able to get, you know, some, uh, some lower-level opponents initially. I mean, it's not that I, I don't want tough-level competition, but I literally have never had a fight before, so mm. – I mean, I think it'd be kind of silly. I had talked to, to another organization, you know, uh, a couple other organizations prior to um, talking with uh, one. And, um, you know, there was a couple situations involved where, like, the first fight that I was offered was, like, a fight against a dude who, you know, had, like, 50 fights. And I just think it's an unintelligent situation to put yourself in, you know. 
Um, grappling is, is a, uh, you know, a sport and a martial art and everything. Don't get me wrong. It's an excellent way to defend yourself. Um, but we're talking about a completely different combat sport. And I think it would be kind of silly to, uh, to just start off at, at the highest level right away. I mean, Shinya has been fighting for a long time. And I even said when I grappled Shinya that the certain elements of what he does in the, in the cage are things that I could, I could feel he developed for, after years of being, uh, you know, involved in mixed martial arts and there's certain skills that I, I'm just very far behind at. So, you know, I'm definitely going to take, uh, you know, a few fights before I'm, I, I feel as though I'm confident enough to, uh, to be, you know, uh, challenging somebody of, you know, his or anybody else that's uh, of a high level in mixed martial arts stature. Uh, I want to try to do this the right way. MMA is not really, you know, in jujitsu, you lose as long as you tap, you're fine. You know what I mean? In MMA, it could be, you know, especially with some of their rules, like I think you can kind of kick down opponents and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you lose, it could be like serious brain damage and, <laughs> you know, uh, you could be badly injured. So, um, it's not really, I'm not looking to, um, to go out there and hurt myself, you know, the first, first couple fights. Um, you know, I definitely need to get my feet wet and there's a lot of skills that I got to improve. Yeah, and so, you know, you mentioned kind of that a couple of times, that there's uh, a couple of skills that you feel like you need to improve before you're, you know, really on with all of that, and it is a completely different game. What do you think is the kind of been the hardest part of moving from grappling to, like, an MMA-based training? Um, The hardest part? I mean, you know, getting punched and kicked in the face, that's, <laughs> that's tough. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, just, it's just totally new. You know, a lot of people... It's funny, you know, they'll, they'll like take a little bit of a break from jujitsu and then, uh, they'll come back and they'll be like, oh man, you know, I just got to get in shape. And I always laugh because it's usually guys that are already in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they're not in shape. They just, you know, aren't used to grappling as much, you know, and, and it's kind of the same thing with mixed martial arts. It's just something that I'm completely not used to. Uh, so, you know, it's going to make me more sore, more tired, you know, more aggravated that I, you know, I don't understand the concept as well. I'm less efficient with every movement that I make, so I use more strength than I use, you know, finesse, et cetera. So um, I think that's just the hardest part is just getting acclimated to that type of training um, so that I'm a little bit more efficient, similar to the way that I am in jiu-jitsu, you know? Yeah, and and I think, uh, you know, a lot of what you said there is, is super smart. I'm going to ask you a couple of stylistic choices here, too, because... Uh, obviously we're, we're interested in what it's going to look like when Gary Tonin gets in a cage for the very first time. Uh, so, you know, sure. you, your, your team is well known for their leg lock game. Obviously they've got a bunch of other things going on, uh, with the back take system. That's been really, really good over the last couple of tournaments that, that have, uh, shined through, but, but you're known for the leg lock game. So in, in MMA, we've only seen one or two guys ever be super successful with the leg lock game, right? We've seen Husamar, Ryan Hall, uh, and, you know, maybe uh, Imanari uh, be really successful with, with leg locks. Do, do you think uh, that modern MMA is kind of moving away from leg locks, and do you think that it can be brought back? Well, I don't think it's moving away. I just don't really think that there was too many people that were that competent um, with leg locks to begin with. Um, I think that that's part of the reason that a lot of the guys that were successful with them uh, were very successful to begin with is because I think many of their opponents just didn't really have a clue as to what's, what was going on. I mean, jiu-jitsu is, is uh, you know, in mixed martial arts, um, you know, was already something that a lot of people had to catch up with. Um, and then, you know, furthering, furthering that, like most of the time you take like an average MMA fighter who maybe doesn't specialize in jiu-jitsu, let's say he's a kickboxer or a Muay Thai guy or something like that, right? And, uh, you know, he takes, 
you know, starts taking jujitsu lessons or whatever the case may be. I have a feeling that leg locks isn't very high up on the list of things that they're training to, uh, to better themselves in mixed martial arts, uh, unless they have a specific opponent who they know is going to be going after them. It doesn't tend to be a core part of what a lot of people are learning in terms of jujitsu. So I think it's, it could be in terms of, you know, submission, you know, it's a hell of a lot easier, in my opinion, in mixed martial arts to be able to secure an inverted heel hook than it is an armbar from closed guard like you see half of these jiu-jitsu guys trying to do. So um, I don't see any reason why they can't be extremely effective. You know, as far as what I plan to do with my jiu-jitsu skills in MMA, um, I'm definitely gonna, I definitely plan to use them to win fights for sure, but I also have a lot of skills that I want to practice in the cage, and I think one of the biggest mistakes a lot of guys that are going into um, – the mixed martial arts game are making in terms of, you know, jiu-jitsu guys, at least if they plan on, uh, you know, getting to a higher level, is they're, they're using their jiu-jitsu skills too much and relying on them too heavily early on in their career. You know, and they take some of these fights, like you may have mentioned, like, you know, McKenzie had some, uh, some opponents that were, uh, you know, less experienced, like more, you know, matched to her level. You know, um, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't watch any of her fights. I watched, like, one um, which I think she actually knocked a girl out, so it's kind of a bad example of what I'm talking about. But, <laughs> but there, uh, there are some other guys that have transitioned where they like try to pull guard on some of these other these opponents and try to get like a quick submission victory, and that's nice for your first couple fights. But you know, one day you're going to be, you know, competing against the guys that are at the highest level, and if all you have to rely on is your jiu-jitsu, and they have that figured out, and they, you know, they're typically the guy that's you know the champ the that's holding the belt of a particular weight category or whatever the case may be, it's not like a mistake that the guy is out there. He'd probably say somebody that was good at jiu-jitsu somewhere along the way. You know, so uh, I think that what they'll find is because they haven't tried those other skills that they've been working on, like boxing, Muay Thai, um, and other striking skills, and maybe shoot box, et cetera, and they haven't tried them in, in, in their lower-level fights, when they go to try to do them in their higher-level fights, it's going to be a struggle because they haven't even felt what it's like with lower-level resistance. Uh, in a in a fight scenario, it would be like if uh, you know I only practiced um, you know inverted heel hooks on white belts, and then like I tried to do them on black belts in competition. Like it's it's kind of not comparable. You know, you're not going to get the same type of reaction. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so um, switching it up just a tiny bit here. So uh, you know the, the Donahue Death Squad's been so dominant in in grappling for so long. We see you moving to MMA. I know Gordon Ryan is talking about going gi. Does it, does it feel sort of weird or like a, a bad breakup with, uh, you know, all of the Donahue Death Squad guys kind of moving to, you know, or so almost different avenues? In a way, yes. In a way, no. Um, I just think it's the next step in our progression, you know. Um, I, I'd love to get good at the geese too, but I've always really wanted, you know, I kind of had to pick, you have to pick so uh, I always wanted to do mixed martial arts, and I feel it kind of blends better with uh, – you know, the no-gi jiu-jitsu that I've been doing. Plus, I'm a little bit further on in my career. You know, I'm 26. Gordon's probably, I think he's like 22. So he's a little younger. So he's got some more years left before. You know, I'm only going to have so many good years left before, uh, you know, for MMA anyway. Um, so um, what was I going to say? That uh, any, anyway, we have, uh, I'll still be training jiu-jitsu. Gordon will still be training, you know, gi and no-gi, you know, even though we're going to be moving in different focuses. And uh, we're still going to be around to kind of help the, uh, the other members of the team, maybe some of the lower-level guys, to try to get to the point where we were in jiu-jitsu, and maybe you'll see some of those guys, you know, shine. I think it's kind of, uh, you know, it's just the next stage of the game where, you know, some of these other guys uh, will fill in the gaps where, um, 
you know, we're, we previously were some of the other guys, maybe Taza and Nikki and um, these guys will start coming up through the ranks and uh, competing in some of the higher level tournaments that we were competing in. Yeah. And, uh, and you've already seen that you know, a little bit with Abu Dhabi too. Yes. Yeah. All of us, there was pretty much a whole damn team was in <laughs> ADCC, even from the, from the guys that were, uh, you know, that are usually um, in the, uh, in like the semi-pro tournaments, you know, that made it to ADCC. So, um, you know, I think they're, they're getting to a very high level very quickly. And um, I think uh, it'll be fun to watch those guys, you know, kind of uh, hopefully do even better than we did, you yeah. know, um, that'll be exciting. So I don't, I don't really feel saddened about it in any way because I'm still going to be around you get to every day. Mm. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to switch gears just one more time here. So we're, we're almost at the end of the interview. I know you've been doing some training uh, occasionally at TriStar or at least the TriStar guys come down and train with you. Uh, I know Zahabi is one that, that shows up. He's fighting this weekend. I, I got to ask your opinion. You know, if you're the type of guy who's gotten to work with GSP leading up to the fight this weekend, what was it like? And, uh, you know, what are sort of your expectations for him going into this weekend? Well, I can't really talk like, uh, you know, too specifically, yeah. especially oh. in an interview where not want to give away like game planning and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but in terms of like my expectations, I, I still, I think he'll do very well. Uh, I think uh, it's going to be a, a tough fight from what the tape that we've watched with, um, you know, his opponent. What we can see is essentially that his greatest attribute over anything else is his ability to stay in the fight for the whole fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that sounds kind of cliche in a sense, but there are a lot of people who, if you're able to put considerable pressure, I don't care if it's grappling, striking, whatever the case may be, if you're able to put pressure on them in one particular area, they tend to kind of fold a little bit whether it's getting tired or whether it's not them not being able to, you know, maneuver out of positions or whatever the case may be. Um, Big Bing's the kind of guy that, like, no matter where you kind of put him in, in terms of the bad spot, whether it's in striking, whether it's in grappling, he finds a way to kind of keep the fight moving, whether it's getting back up to his feet or, um, you know, circling out when it, when it comes to striking and getting away from too much damage. So I think regardless of how, um, how good of a fight, uh, it is for George. It's still going to probably be like a five-round uh, fight that goes to decision, hopefully unanimously for George. Hopefully he, uh, you know, you know, dest- destroys him in all five rounds. But even still, like I said, like Big Bing will be dangerous for all five of those rounds, no matter how good um, George is. So he's really going to have to stay in the uh, in the action the entire time. There's no there's no breaks essentially with Big Bing. Yeah. Well, Gary, uh, we, kept, we kept you just a little bit longer than we said we were going to, uh, but I could just listen to your, <laughs> your technical breakdowns forever. Uh, so thank you so much again for the time, and we wish you the best of the luck whenever it is you get that debut. No problem. Thank you so much. And those two interviews were, of course, brought to you by Dead Frog Brewery. Dead Frog Brewery is a small batch brewery that uses no pasteurization and no preservatives to bring you fresh, clean beer. I personally love their Green Magic IPA. It's got a nice little citrusy punch to it. But if you're more of a lager type, you can get their Steel Toe Lager, both now available in Tallboy cans, at a store near you. There you have it, Dave. Uh, Jimmy Rivera and Gary Tonin. Yeah, so let's take this one by one, Gumby. Jimmy Rivera, top of the bantamweight division here, you know, put together a very impressive win streak, and now he's fighting, in my humble opinion, probably yours too, the GOAT at 135 pounds. This is a very exciting time in Jimmy Rivera's career, is it not? Yeah, and and 100% the GOAT too, so we can just touch on that ahead of time. I mean, this is a guy 
who pretty much dismantled Mighty Mouse Johnson when and, and sent him to 125. He invented the 125-pound division, if you want to <laughs> label it that way, really. I mean, he, he made it so that Mighty Mouse had to go elsewhere. Uh, and at the same time, I mean, he, he beat, you know, Faber twice, Dillashaw once. I mean, he's definitely the GOAT. So for Jimmy Rivera on a 20-fight win streak uh, to finally be getting this shot, I mean, it feels like it's overdue. Absolutely, and it's going to be very interesting to see because, you know, it's an impressive win streak. I, I, I take nothing away from him beating, you know, uh, an aging Uriah Faber, but still Uriah Faber, and then you have, like, your up-and-comer, someone they were very hyped on, and Thomas Almeida, exactly. Pedro Munoz, tough guy. Uh, even Marcus Brimage, you know, had his moments earlier on in his career. But when you step up to Dominic Cruz, Cody Garbrandt, and TJ Dillashaw, what the three of those guys have done and their body of work, the way they put on performances, their striking is so far. It's like those three, then massive gap, Jimmy Rivera. Well, do, do you, you know, agree? Do, At least as of right now. Do, do you know what it kind of reminds me of, though, is it sort of reminds me of the Darren Till situation from two weeks ago. I mean, he had shown to be super impressive against everybody. And until he fought that top echelon of fighters, everybody was like, eh, I don't know about Darren Till. Uh, Darren Till might not be. They gave him the top echelon and he broke through. This could be the big breakthrough fight for Jimmy Rivera. It was similar, but very different. And I'll tell you why. Donald Cerrone is no Dominic Cruz at his weight class. Never has been, never will be. I mean, Dominic Cruz, his striking is out of this world. So I'm with you. I mean, if he beats Dominic Cruz... It's the arrival party, and we have a brand-new contender at 135 pounds right there with Dillashaw and Garbrandt, mm-hmm. which I expect to be a close close fight this week. It's exciting. It's a great matchup. I'm happy for Jimmy Rivera, friend of the show now, times two, um, but he's got a tall mountain ahead of him in uh, Dominic Cruz. Yeah, yeah, and I totally get your point, too, about Cruz, obviously not uh, Cowboy Cerrone, but uh, I think that welterweight echelon, so to speak, is a little bit thicker especially now that welterweight echelon is a little bit thicker than that uh, bantamweight one, which is a little bit thinner. Uh, but no, no, not really. Because the best welterweight in the world is Rory McDonald. He has wins over everyone in the top five. He's not even in that division anymore. And when I say Dominic Cruz is like the GOAT at 135, he's also maybe one of the GOAT of all time in the UFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, his striking is beyond other – it's like – what J.J. is at 115 pounds, Dominic Cruz was doing at 135 pounds men for the past, you know, five, six years with Into three his years last of injury. Fight. Into his last fight. Well, he got outclassed yeah, by he started. Who I he started believe. whiffing, which you've never seen him do. No, never. And, you know, he's had his injuries and plantar fasciitis, and obviously he went against a hungrier, younger lion in Cody Darbrand. And I couldn't have been more impressed. Was not expecting that performance from Cody Darbrand. I saw it. If he was going to get him, it would be a knockout. Cody Garbrandt outworked him, outclassed him, outstruck him. It was masterful. And that's what we've seen out of TJ Dillashaw since he came under the tutelage of uh, Dwayne Bang. Mm. The striking from those three, Garbrandt's last performance, Cruz's body of work, Dillashaw's body of work, I just think is 
such a different level from everyone else at 135 pounds and even from other divisions really yeah that's that's really true it, it's a different style of striking and for some reason it's only taken root in one fucking division um i guess maybe because it's like copycat on cruise you know because yeah. he was like the originator how, but how we, yeah it, how it's do we just, beat the goat we emulate the goat yes exactly exactly something no one's been able to do at 125 with mighty mouse yeah um, now, with Tonin, uh, you know I am a Tonin fanboy. Uh, very As interesting that he's... Uh, very interesting with the move to MMA. I mean, he couldn't be in better hands between Faraz Sahabi, training with GSP. Obviously, Danaher was an integral part of GSP's career uh, as far as the grappling aspect goes. And I loved everything I heard with him saying, you know, it can't just all be heel hooks because... In modern MMA, this ain't 1993. You know, people know how to defend submissions now. So you even saw it in a couple of Damian Maya's last performances versus Colby Covington and Tyron Woodley. You know, you defend the takedown, what does your jits really matter? It matters nothing. Mm -hmm. So I loved what I heard out of Tonin. He knows this is not, you know, applying heel hooks to MMA. This is him entering MMA with a phenomenal base of grappling. Yeah. But... You know, what does that really get you in modern MMA? Well, and I think, too, it was so wise to hear him talk about the way that he understood that if he wanted to go into MMA for the very first time and heel hook the first four, you know, newly minted pros that he's given in 1FC, he probably could. He could go in and heel hook them. But the fact that he knows that that's not going to get him anywhere in the long run, it's it's so interesting to just hear him talk about the long run in that facet. It's you know, that's really encouraging to me that it's this isn't just a one-off or a two-off or he's trying to make a quick buck in 1FC. He's trying to make a career out of this, and he knows the yes. right way to go about it. And I feel like that's what you get being surrounded with GSP and Firas Sahabi. Yeah, I think what I took from that interview, because, you know, I haven't heard a ton of interviews with him. I mean, I followed some stuff. Flo did a great thing on the Danaher Death Squad. Everyone should check out. And obviously I've watched every EBI as a grappling nerd. But what I really got from our show talking to him is that he is uh, just a smart dude, yeah. you know, He uh, and he's obviously surrounded by smart people between Danaher and Faraz. Yeah, and I, I think he sort of gets that knucklehead moniker, uh, you know, with the, the, the antics and dyeing his hair blonde like Dylan Danis and things like that. Um, so, gamesmanship, so, gamesmanship. Yeah, it's, it's gamesmanship, and it, it's all cerebral, and he's way, way smarter than the average fan could ever realize. So, obviously, he has the benefit, not too many uh, novice MMA fighters or grappler-turned-MMA fighters have, and that's the fact that he gets to train with this guy out of Canada named George St. Pierre. What a fucking luxury, making your MMA debut. Uh, and GSP's got to fight this weekend, Gumby. After four years, we will transition now to our breakdown uh, of GSP versus Michael Bisping at MSG. What number UFC is this? This is UFC 217, and our breakdown of UFC 217 is brought to you by Sisu Mouthguards. Sisu Mouthguards are the lightest, best, most durable mouthguard on the market. You can talk, you can breathe, you can drink, all with the mouthguard up in your mouth. Go to SISUGuard.com and get the right mouthguard for you. Very well said. So GSP makes his comeback. After four years, the last time we saw him, he got a razor-close decision that I think he won. I think he took that first round against Johnny Hendricks back in November of 2013. I believe that was UFC 167. But he's coming back now at middleweight, something few people predicted. And he's going to be fighting the middleweight champion, Michael Bisping, 
something few people predicted. This thing we last saw, he had a razor close to Sam over Dan Henderson. Almost got knocked out there in that first round. That was last fall, I want to say in October. So we haven't seen him in a year. And, of course, if you go back one fight before that, he won the title off of Luke Rockhold when Rockhold didn't have his hands up in front of his chin. A little fluky, in my opinion. I don't think many people regard Michael Bisping as one of the more dominant fighters of the division at middleweight, but he is the champion. Gumby GSP is a minus 115. You could get Bisping around a minus 110, minus 105 in some books. I don't think Vegas really knows what to make of the four-year layoff for GSP. What do you make of it all? So it's hard for me to, to talk about that that layoff, too, because last week we talked about the layoff with Machida, and I, I kind of automatically assumed that his counters would be just as good. And, and he fought a decent fight, and he looked all right. But there was definitely a little bit off in his timing or a little bit slower, even if it was just a little bit. And he's, I mean, he's 39 years old now, so that makes sense. With GSP, I, I got to assume he's been staying in phenomenal shape and, and he's been training with killers because, I mean, you know, TriStar is one of the best places up there. When I go to break down this fight, I, I think Gary Tonin actually helped me break down this fight. When when I asked him what he was expecting of, of GSP and what he was expecting of Bisping, he sort of said that, that Bisping is just the kind of fighter who hangs around constantly and he's in the fight no matter what for 15 or 25 minutes, however long it's going to be. And it's that that led me to think about how he beat Dan Henderson. Because, right, like, he he beat Dan Henderson because he just had more. It wasn't that he had better all the time. He just had more to him than Dan Henderson. He had more longevity than Dan Henderson. This is going to be the first time I think he's going to be forced to fight for 25 minutes against a guy whose work rate will be better than him, a guy whose pressure will be better than him, and a guy whose grappling will be better than him. Bisping might have a striking advantage here, but it, it might be the first time he doesn't have, like, a cardio advantage here. You know what I mean? Well, I do. I See, I think everything you just said I agree with, and I would agree with more if you said it in 2013. I don't know that GSP has a cardio advantage right now. Because he's also moving up in weight, walking around a little heavier. Let's face it, we all saw the photos. Looked a little on the pledgy side, around the center, uh, the midsection. Oh, you talk about so the Chuck Liddell photo? <laughs> yeah. I I agree with everything you're saying, but I don't know. I mean, this thing's a fucking cardio bunny, you know? And uh, I've never seen his cardio fail him. I've seen his grappling fail him in the first fight with Luke Rockhold. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly, you know, GSP works his takedowns, which we all assume he will. Uh, that's how I see GSP's path to victory. In the fifth round of a 2-2 fight, I, you know, I just don't know off a four-year layoff. I'm not confident saying that GSP will out-cardio Michael Bisman. Yeah, but, but think about this, too. So you're, you make a good point. His cardio is always held up. But how many times have you seen somebody like Michael Bisping, or have you seen Michael Bisping, be the person not setting the pace. You know what I mean? He's always the one who's dictating the pace. He's the one who's sort of putting the pressure on. He's never been the one who's been pushed further than that. And if he has, you know, don't get me wrong, he he probably has at some point in time, but it hasn't gone well for him. Think about Tim Kennedy. Tim Kennedy forced him to fight at a different pace. He grappled him. He worked hard for five rounds. And Bisping couldn't hold up to Tim Kennedy doing that. You know what I mean? 
Same yeah. With, same with if yeah, you think ab- about. Absolutely. Same with if you think about Luke Rockhold getting that guillotine choke. Yeah, yeah, it was only in the second round. We understand it was only in the second round. But it was because Rockhold put it on him for a while. He pressured him. And, and I mean, if you go all the way back, I know we're going way back now on Bisping's record, but if you think of his other most recent loss, other than the, the spinning head kick from Vitor Belfort, he got out-pressured in a three-round decision by Shale Sonnen because Shale Sonnen just had more. I mean, if you're adding up what Bisping has lost to, Bisping has lost to guys who can outgrapple him and outpressure him. Tim Kennedy, Shale Sonnen. I mean, GSP is just a better version of those two. He might be smaller, but he's a better technical version of those two in the grappling department. Very well said. And I actually was a little concerned on the size, but I was looking it up earlier today. And when it comes to reach, I mean, and who knows how accurate this is on the UFC website, but they actually say GSP is a 76-inch reach. Bisping is uh, 75 leg reach for Bisping um, is 44 and for GSP, they don't even list it, but I'm, I'm not so concerned on the size. Like I think at, when they first announced the matchup, I thought to myself, wow, Bisping's going to tower over him. And sure he's six one GSP listed at five eleven, probably means five ten and a quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not as worried about that. And like you said, GSP is the far, far better grappler. If we were doing a Madden rating to this, GSP is like a 98 when it comes to MMA grappling. Michael Bisping gets by at a 79. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's such a good point. Uh, so we'll move now to the co-main event, and holy fuck is this a good fight. You have TJ Dillashaw trying to reclaim his belt. He lost it in a split decision two years ago in Boston uh, to Dominic Cruz. Razor, razor close decision. And Cody Garbrandt came out of not nowhere, but you know he was a highly touted prospect out of the same team alpha male that uh, TJ Dillashaw, uh, you know, came up through. And now they finally meet in this almost pro wrestling esque drama. Former teammates, uh, Dillashaw has since moved on. Garbrandt beat Dominic Cruz, the first person from Team Alpha Male to really beat Dominic Cruz when you don't count Uriah Faber's sort of fluky guillotine choke in the WEC. Uh, you know, Gar- uh, Dillashaw couldn't do it. Uriah Faber couldn't do it. But Cody Garbrandt did. He is the champion. Uh, this will be his first title defense, and he is a minus 175 favorite versus TJ Dillashaw, the plus 155 dog, as low as one four, plus 145 in some books. Gumby, who are you going with? I, I'm going with Cody Garbrandt, mostly because of what I saw against Dominic Cruz. And, and we sort of mentioned it before when we were talking about the Rivera interview that everybody in the division seems to have adopted a lot of what Dominic Cruz does. And, and for me, when I watched that Dominic Cruz-TJ Dillashaw fight in Boston... Dillashaw just looked like a slightly slower, less good grappling version of Dominic Cruz. I I scored the fight 100% for Dominic Cruz. I thought he definitely won three out of five rounds. And in all of the rounds he won, he was a little bit quicker than Dillashaw. He moved a little bit better. That jerky motion works better for him than it does for Dillashaw. Fast forward now, what happened when Cruz, the slightly better version of Dillashaw, in my opinion, fought Cody Garbrandt? It went awful it went really 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 terrible he whiffed a bunch of times he got popped a bunch of times he fucking bled for the first time in his life so for me i I just see this being exactly what cruz dillashaw or uh cruz uh garbrand was all over again i see garbrand doing exactly to dillashaw what he did to cruz 
Yeah, so my my prediction here uh, is Garbrandt as well, but I see it a little differently from you. Uh, I see it as razor, razor close. I think it's too, I, you know, I brought up a, a hypothetical, maybe it's going to be two to two GSP Bisping going into the fifth. I, I don't think that's possible. I think it's going to be what we just talked about. I think GSP is going to be grinding out. Maybe he's up three to one going into the fifth, but with, Garbrandt and Dillashaw, I really believe this is going to be a controversial judge's decision because I just think they're two of the best. They know each other's style. I mean, unless you tell me Garbrandt's going to knock him out because he does have more power than T.J. Dillashaw, uh, I just see this going to decision. I think Garbrandt takes three out of five. It, it might be worth looking up, too, what the uh, what the Vegas odds are on a draw just in case Dillashaw or uh, – Garbrand really lights him up in one round, uh, but then loses three other ones. A draw might be a hot bet right here. Yeah, I like where you're going with that. I will have the intern look that up uh, right now. I can tell you that the over-under in this uh, is actually a little surprising to me. It's three and a half rounds, just being that it is 135. Uh, you know, you just saw Garbrand for as much power as he has. He couldn't put... Uh, Dominic Cruz away. I like the over at three and a half rounds. Oh, I love it's a minus the over. 165 bet. Yeah, I love the over there. Um, fight goes to decision is plus 100. So uh, even that is, you know, I, I guess they're slightly favoring that, uh, not favoring that, but giving some points on it. And fight as a draw is plus 7,500. Hey, you know what? With a New York State commission, fuck it. Throw 50, $100 on that. Because you just never know with something that close. Did you say seventy five hundred? Yeah, plus seventy five hundred. Yeah, that's yeah, seventy five that, not bad odds. <laughs> it's not bad odds for a fight we're expecting to go to a controversial decision. I, yeah. I really like that bet. I, yeah, you, I think you, we just found a uh, a good prop. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll move on here and we'll speed through the rest. Ioana Janjacek, the dominant 115-pound strawweight champion, is a minus 600 favorite to Rose Namajunas, a plus 450 dog. Obviously, JJ going for a record here for title defenses for a female to break Ronda Rousey's. Then she's talked about moving up to the newly created 125-pound division. Ioana, the best striker, not just in female and MMA, but she's someone. if someone said, what does a good MMA striker look like, I'd probably show them Ioana before I showed them anyone else. Rose Namajunas, very plucky underdog. We all love her from the show. She's a great all-around MMA fighter. I love her grappling, but I think her striking is so outmatched versus uh, Joanna. What do you think, Gumby? Yeah, I think you said it all right there. I I'm a huge Rose Namajunas fan. I, I love her grappling. I think it's super creative. What she did to Michelle Watterson was just absolutely incredible. She looked really, really, really good on the ground against a, a very talented opponent in Michelle Watterson. But at the same time, the, what's going to need to be there in order to beat Ioana on Jacek is wrestling. Uh, and I just don't think Rose's wrestling is powerful enough or creative enough to get in on Ioana and to get the takedown on Ioana because she's not going to outstrike her. There's no way she outstrikes her. <laughs> and in order right. to bring it Correct. into her world, she has to force it down there. Joanna's not going to shoot a takedown and then grapple with her. You know what I mean? Uh, yep. You said a mouthful right there. I agree completely. So it's it's a Yoan, it's the Joanna show all day, every day. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm going to say she right. TKOs her, too. 
Wow, nice yeah, one. I, I'll, um, say, I'll say like third round, it's over. Wow, Joanna wins by TKO plus one eighty right now. If you are a gambling man, we'll move on now to Jorge Masvidal versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Both coming off losses. Thompson in a very bad loss to Tyron Woodley, where no one really seemed to want to even win the fight or be in the fight. That was back in March. Jorge Masvidal coming off a loss to Damian Maya. Props to Masvidal for actually surviving the three rounds. Maya had his back there at one point. Uh, Masvidal plus one sixty. Stephen one Stephen Wonderboy Thompson minus one eighty. Who you got? I'm actually going to go with Masvidal on this one. Uh, one of the things I really like about him is his pressure fighting. Uh, you know, when you look at what's caused Stephen Wonderboy Thompson to lose, it, it's sort of similar to the Michael Bisping thing. It, somebody who can push his pace and force his hand while still staying technical striking wise. So, I mean, if you, mm. if you looked at, you know, Matt Brown, Matt Brown is not the most technical striker on the feet, right? But he was still no. technical enough to defend himself while he got in on takedowns in order to beat him up. Now, I don't think Masvidal is going to take him down, but if he wanted to, he could. And I actually think he gets in and is more aggressive to get in on side on Stephen Thompson than any of his past opponents were. All right. Well, that, I, I, hey, I respect going with underdogs. I myself am taking Thompson. It's three rounds. I think... You know, short of one of them outstriking the other and getting a knockout, I think it goes to decision. I think Wonder Boy wins on points. And if you follow, if you're following along at home, while well, I agree with your prediction that uh, Rose uh, might get knocked out by Joanna, I think out of the big four fights, I think three have very good chances to go to decision. And it makes sense because you're dealing with the upper echelon of all these divisions, the best of the best in the world. So you might not just get, uh, you know, a classic of five finishes on this night. That all being said, I like your breakdown, Gumby. I like your picks. I like that you went with Masvidal, the underdog. Why don't you give people a fighter or other fight to watch out for here that you're excited for that they should go out of their way to catch a highlight of if they can't watch it live? Well, if you can't watch it live, uh, you got to watch the, the lead-off to the pay-per-view. So I know we talked about the top four fights. Go down just one more fight on the card. Did you ever think Johnny Hendricks would be can't miss TV? Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't think I'd ever say that, but I'm going to say it today because he's fighting Paulo Boracina, who's uh, out of Brazil. He's only fought twice in the UFC. Both of them absolutely vicious, absolutely brutal knockouts. He knocked out uh, Oluwale Bangboche in his last fight, and he looked absolutely outstanding. Uh, I think he is somebody you need to watch at middleweight because he's going to be running up those ranks super fast. The uh, other one who I'm pretty excited to see is uh, I'm excited to see the Randy Brown-Mickey Gall fight. It's a very clear styles clash for me. Randy Brown's clearly got the striking advantage, but he's going to have to save off the, the takedown attempts of Mickey Gall in order to stay out of that world. Um, apart from that, I also like Ian Kutalaba, who's a light heavyweight, who's going to be fighting a newcomer from Poland. Uh, I'm not even going to try to say his last name Oleksijuk uh, and uh, Alexio Linux fighting Curtis Blades. I'm a big Curtis Blades fan uh, just based on how tough he was against Francis Naganu. So a lot of fun fights on the undercard. Super, super, super exciting. Uh, top to bottom. Yeah, after a very lackluster year for the UFC, this is a card they gave to the fans. It's full of great matchups and big name fighters. 
at least on paper, it doesn't beat last year's debut at MSG. Obviously, Connor being there had a lot of hype. You had another Yolanda matchup. I think one that was maybe even a little closer in retrospect than Rose will end up being when she fought Carolina Kowalkowicz. And then, of course, we got Stephen Wonderboy Thompson versus Woodley 1, which was like an instant classic and the exact opposite of their sequel. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, yeah, um, I, I don't I don't think it holds up to that other show, but I, I do think that this one has a lot of merit top to bottom. I, I'm not mad at it at all. Like I said, in a lackluster year, thank you, UFC, for putting this together. I don't even know who's making the matches anymore, but I appreciate what they did on this card. <laughs> All right, this has been another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We thank you so much for listening. We thank Flow Combat, our partner. We thank Gary Tonin and Jimmy Rivera for coming on. I am David Tremonti. He is Daniel Gumby-Vreeland. We will be back next week.